And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West. The most haunted city in the country. Well, today is April the 10th, the 100th day of 2023. 265 days remain to the years over with. Now, it's... Uh, there's a number of, um, well, let's call them holidays on this particular date. <clears throat> it is National Hug Your Day Dog, Hug Your Dog Day, duh. National Sibling Day, birth anniversary of Manolika Ning Bayan Basino in Tare. He was a, uh, Really a talented musician from all accounts. It's Dingus Day. Easter Monday. Global Work From Home Day. Golfers Day. International Safety Pin Day. National Calvin Day. National Cinnamon Crescent Day. National Encourage a Young Writer Day. I wish somebody would encourage me a whole lot more than they did. National Farm Animals Day. National Nana Day. National Report IRS Tax Fraud Day, National Tamara Day, National Youth HIV and AIDS Awareness Day, Orthodox Easter Monday, Salvation Army Founders Day, White House Easter Egg Roll, and World Homeopathy Day. Well, that having been said... I got the sniffles this morning. In 428, Nestorius becomes the Patriarch of Constantinople. 837, Halley's Comet makes its closest approach to Earth at a distance equal to 0.0342 astronomical units. That's about 3.2 million miles, which is pretty damn close. 1407, Deshin Shekpa, the 5th Lama, visited the Ming Dynasty capital of Nanjing and awarded the title Great Treasure Prince of Dharma. 1500, Ludovico Sforza is captured by Swiss troops at Navarre and is handed over to the French. 1545, settlement of Villa Imperial de Carlos V. Now the city of Potosi in Bolivia is founded after the discovery of a huge silver deposit in the area. 1606, the Virginia Company of London is established by Royal Charter by James I of England with the purpose of establishing colonial settlements in North America. However, as we've said in previous shows, and I'll be saying in future shows, uh, the settling of America by the English, that was basically old news. There had been settlements here of various civilizations for thousands of years. 1710, the Statute of Anne, the first law regulating copyright, comes into force in Great Britain. 1717, Robert Walpole resigns from the British government, commencing the Whig split, which lasts until 1720. 1741, War of the Austrian Succession, Prussia gains control of Silesia at the Battle of Malwitz. 1809, Napoleonic Wars. War of the Fifth Coalition begins when forces of the Austrian Empire invade Bavaria. 1815, Mount Tambora volcano begins a three-month-long eruption, lasting until July 15th. The eruption ultimately kills 71,000 people and affects Earth's climate for the next two years. 1816, the federal government of the U.S. approves the creation of the Second Bank of the United States. I think Andrew Jackson refused to renew the charter of the First Bank. 1821, the Patriarch Gregory V of Constantinople is hung by the Ottoman government from the main gate of the Patriarchate and his body is thrown into the Bosphorus. Also in 1821, Greek War of Independence, the island of Tassara joins the Greek struggle for independence. 1826, 10,500 inhabitants in the Greek town of Missolonghi began leaving the town after a year's siege by Turkish forces. Very few of them survive. They're massacred uh, as they 
trying to move away. 1858, after the original Big Ben, a 14.5 ton, that's 32,000 pound uh, bell for the Palace of Westminster. Uh, the original had cracked during testing, so it's recast to the current 30,300 pound bell by Whitechapel Bell Foundry. 1864, Archduke Maximilian of Habsburg proclaimed Emperor of Mexico during the French intervention in Mexico. 1865, American Civil War. But after surrender to Union forces, Confederate General Robert E. Lee addresses his troops for the last time. 1866. American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals is founded in New York by Henry Berg. 1868. Uh, at Aragi in Abyssinia, British and Indian troops defeat uh, an army of Emperor Tuodorus II. While 700 Ethiopians are killed and many more injured, only two British or Indian troops die. 1872, the first Arbor Day celebrated in Nebraska. 1875, in India, Arya Samaj is founded in Mumbai by Swami Dayandanda Saraswati to propagate his goal of social reform. 1887, on Easter Sunday, Pope Leo XIII authorizes the establishment of the Catholic University of America. 1896, Summer Olympics. Olympic marathon is run, ending with the victory of Greek athlete uh, Speridon Luis. 1900, British suffer a sharp defeat by the Boers south of Bradford. 600 British troops are killed, wounded, and 800 taken prisoner. 1912, RSM, the RMS Titanic. Set sail from Southampton, England on her maiden and only voyage. You know, there is a story that the sinking the Titanic was actually an insurance scam. Uh, it had a sister ship named the Olympic that had had its hull breached several times. And supposedly, the uh, owners of the Titanic and the Olympic changed the names to let the Olympic sink so they could claim the insurance. But they sank under the name of Titanic. At least that's the story. 1916, Professional Golfers Association of America is created in New York City. That's the PGA, don't you know? 1919, Mexican Revolution leader Emiliano Zapata is ambushed and shot dead by government forces in Morelos. Also on this date, 1919, the Third Regional Congress of Peasants, Workers, and Insurgents is held by uh, the... China at uh, Lipo. 1925, The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald was first published in New York by Charles Scribner and Sons. 1938, the 1938 German parliamentary election and referendum seeks approval for a single list of Nazi candidates in the recent annexation of Austria. 1939, Alcoholics Anonymous, Big Book is first published. On this date, 1941, World War II, the Axis powers established an independent state of Croatia. 1944, Rudolf Verba and Alfred Wetzler escaped from Birkenau death camp. 1963, 129 American sailors die when the submarine USS Thresher sinks at sea. I don't think they ever figured out why it sank. 1968, the TEV Wahini, a New Zealand ferry, sinks in Wellington Harbor due to a fierce storm. Strongest winds ever in Wellington. Out of 734 people on board, 53 die. Uh, 1970, Paul McCartney announces he's leaving the Beatles for personal, professional reasons. Um, he didn't like the fact John was running the show. And he certainly didn't like John's new main squeeze. Uh, 1971, ping-pong diplomacy and attempted all relations with the U.S. China hosts the U.S. table tennis team for a week-long visit. 1972, tombs containing bamboo slips, among them Sun Tzu's Art of War. Alrighty. Let me get on the air and everybody and their dog calls. Well, in 1972, on this date, for the first time since November 67, American B-52 bombers began bombing North Vietnam. 
which of course didn't do a whole lot of good because we had congressmen running the war on our part. 1973, Invicta International Airlines Flight 435 crashes in a snowstorm on approach to Basel, Switzerland, kills 108. 1979, Red River Valley tornado outbreak. Tornado lands in Wichita Falls, Texas, kills 42 people. 1988, the O'Hare Camp explosion kills or injures more than 1,000 people in Alapindi and Islamabad in Pakistan. 1991, Italian ferry MS Prince collides with an old tanker in dense fog off uh, Livorno, Italy, killing 140. 1991, a rare tropical storm develops in the South Atlantic Ocean near Angola, the first to be documented by satellite. 1998, the Good Friday Agreement signed in Northern Ireland. 2009, President of Fiji, Ratu Josefa Itolo, announces the abrogation of the Constitution and assumes all governance in the country, creating a constitutional crisis. He wanted to be pink king. 2010, Polish Air Force Tu-154M crashes near Smolensk, Russia, killing 96, including Polish President Lech Krasinski, his wife, and dozens of other senior officials and dignitaries. 2016, the Paravur Temple accident, in which a devastating fire caused by the explosion of firecrackers stored for Vishu, kills more than 100 people out of the thousands gathered for the seventh day of Bhadrakali worship. 2016, an earthquake 6.6 magnitude strikes 39 kilometers west-southwest of Ashkasham, impacting India, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Srinagar, and Pakistan. 2019, scientists from the Event Horizon Telescope Project announced the first ever image of a black hole, which is located in the center of the M87 galaxy. You know, there's all kinds of things going on. Now, I went to, um, I've written a number of books about the ghost of El Paso, and this is the most haunted city in the country. However, another place that has quite a number of ghosts and residents is Las Vegas, Nevada. And as I wandered around the, the city, and took in the sites. I took one of the tours. One of the places we went was Carluccio's Tivoli Gardens Restaurant, which uh, Liberace had opened that restaurant, which was then called Tivoli Gardens. And uh, that restaurant reflected his personality. The bar itself was over 100 years old. Liberace imported it from England and it was a fabulous piece of wood. It was ornate, made entirely of wood. Not the fake wood they make things out of today, but real hardwood. came from real trees. Reddish-brown seemed to fill the space perfectly. The decorative panels that made up the bottom section of the bar uh, gave it a certain uh, old-world charm, if you will. The top was covered in granite. Now, the bartender was an interesting individual. Um, she talked at great length about uh, Liberace, who was... Uh, Las Vegas' most flamboyant musician. She explained the rumors about his lifestyle and his sexual preferences. And when she'd start talking about Liberace, oh, everybody listened. Now, a number of stories that were reported to me is sometimes it appeared Liberace was a. Uh, less than impressed when people started talking about him. On this particular occasion, the bartender got up to go deal with the drink order and three bottles jumped off the top shelf 
hit the chair where the bartender had been sitting. Now, how had those bottles fallen from a very secure wine rack? And if they had fallen on their own, what are the chances they would have hit the chair where the bartender had been sitting? Now, Liberace, who I grew up watching on uh, afternoon TV, had a 30-minute show right before the afternoon movie came on, which was called The Big Show. Now, Liberace was born in the Wadislu Valentino Liberace in 1919 to a Polish mother and an Italian father. Um, yeah, immediately, as soon as they got married, uh, immigrated to America. So Liberace was born in West Allis, suburb of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. His family called him Walter. His friends called him Lee. But before long, he was known simply as Liberace. Now, like Elvis, Liberace was the sole survivor of a twin birth. He weighed 13 pounds when he was born. Like Elvis, he was born with an amazing musical gift. By the time he was seven, he was already a phenomenally talented musician. His instrument of choice was the piano. He could play, play intricate pieces by age seven, by eight, was studying with the famous Polish pianist and composer, uh, Paderewski. Now, most of his talent appears to have been developed under the tutelage of Florence Betre Kelly, his music teacher, for about ten years. Kelly was the only music teacher who was able to stay with the young musician, was so talented he often surpassed his instructors, who would then have to be replaced. Now, Liberace was so talented, he received no less than 17 scholarships, the first of which was to the Wisconsin Conservatory of Music. Paderewski helped him get that one. He, Liberace loved to play, and he was a quick study. He could play classical music in the style of many different composers, and by the time he was 20, he had played as a soloist, soloist with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Now, it was said he got his musical talent from his father, Salvador, who played with the who played the French horn in John Philip Sousa's marching band, his mother Frances, who also played the piano. Salvador Liberace had always dreamed of making it big as a mu musician, and when he did manage to achieve some small success, he all, often found himself working in factories. But he kept the dream alive through his children. Now, musical talent seems to be a family trait one which Liberace shared with his brother George and his sister Angelina. Liberace and George played in trios, and Liberace on the piano and George on the violin. <coughs> Excuse me. In 1940, Liberace signed his first performing contact with the Blankenton Arcade, which was colloquially known as the Red Room in Milwaukee. Same year, he worked as intermission pianist in the Persian room of the Plaza Hotel in New York City. And while he received some acclaim for his playing, he knew he had never achieved complete success till he expanded his repertoire to include uh, more popular music, mixed in, of course, with large doses of the classics. And it wasn't uncommon for him to play the beer bell and polka one minute and Claire de Lune the next. Having no publicist, he promoted himself by mailing postcards to places where he wanted to work. And surprisingly enough, that scheme worked. And in 1944, he was notified by the last frontier in uh, Las Vegas that uh, they wanted to uh, offer him a contract to play in the showroom. He got $750 a week at a time when the average person made $30 a week. So he'd hit the big time. Well, Liberace wasn't only talented, he was also a showman. He was flamboyant and knew how to please the crowd played on oversized pianos and added props such as the candelabra he would eventually uh, become famous for. He'd talk to the audience, taking requests and cracking jokes. He just didn't play the piano. He made sure that attending the show was an experience that uh, his fans would want to repeat time and time again. To promote himself, he took the advice of Paderewski's stage manager and dropped his first two names using only the name Liberace exclusively. Added a flantic spelling to his name on promotional materials to help uh, 
cemented into the minds of his fans, and it worked. And in one year, the last frontier doubled his salary. He was making fifteen hundred dollars a week. Nineteen forty-five, he returned to the Persian Room at the Plaza Hotel. Was noticed by Variety magazine that proclaimed him across between Cary Grant and Robert Alda. Well, in 1952, Liberace said it was a summer replacement for Donna Shore on the Donna Shore show, and he was a natural. NBC gave him his own show that same year. Liberace's show ran on TV from 1952 to 1969. He also appeared on many other shows, including the Ed Sullivan Show, the Jack Benny Show, the Red Skeleton Show, the Monkees, and the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. 1966, the twin theme emerged when Liberace played the dual roles of the villain Chandel, also known as Fingers, and his evil twin Harry on the television series uh, Batman. During lunch breaks, according to Adam West, Liberace entertained the cast and crew playing the piano and taking requests. Well, during the time he had a, his television show, he worked extra hard to create the persona of Liberace. Began to wear elaborate costumes covered in sequins and jewels and rhinestones, and one of those costumes, called the King Neptune, weighed more than 200 pounds. He also wore feathered capes and furs, such as his full-length black uh, diamond mink cape. Uh, even had a platinum candlestick with diamond flames. One of the cars in his collection was Rolls Royce. He had specifically covered in thousands of mirrored tiles. Well, as you might guess, he achieved... Um, huge success. His paycheck for the first two years of his TV show was reportedly $7 million. Had a home in Las Vegas and one in Palm Springs. He was named the Pop Keyboard Artist of the Year by a Contemporary Keyboard Magazine. But throughout it all, he never forgot his family. His mother and sister, Angeline, uh, were often in the front row of his TV show, and his brother George appeared frequently as the guest violinist and orchestra director. It was the TV show that uh, gave him his signature sign-off, the song I'll Be Seeing You, which he sang softly uh, at the close of every show. I had the chance to tour his home when we were in Vegas, and let me tell you, it was it's a sight worth seeing. While his passion for the piano and being Mr. Showmanship was well-known, his passion for cooking was lesser-known published his first book, Liberace Cooks, featuring a photo of the author in his piano-themed kitchen. That book went into seven printings. He was a great cook and took to the kitchen just as he took to the piano. He left to cook for his guests, so much so in 1983, decided to open his own restaurant to the, in the plaza he had purchased back in 1970 to house his museum for Tropicana Boulevard in Las Vegas. Well, his last stage performance took place in November 1986 in the Radio City Music Hall. And as with almost all his performances, this was a huge success. Performed 18 shows in 21 days and was paid over $2 million. December 25, 1986, he appeared on the Oprah Winfrey Show. And that'd be his final appearance. He died February 4, 1987 at the age of 67 from cardiac arrest due to congestive heart failure. Brought on by subacute encephalopathy. Although Herman Hank Milton Greenspun published the Las Vegas Sun newspaper reported he died of complications from AIDS. And there was no doubt he was in fact uh, he did in fact have AIDS. Now the restaurant he was so proud of sat vacant for more than a year before the Carluccio family bought it and reopened it in 88 as Carlucci's Tivoli Gardens. And while Liberace's body was entombed at the Forest Lawn Hollywood Hills Cemetery, it appears he may not have stayed there. From the moment the restaurant opened, strange things happened. Waiters reported leaving tables set up for the next day, only to have the candles all grouped together on one table when they showed up to work the next day. On one occasion, those candles were all hidden behind the bar. One night, John uh, Hoosier, the general manager, was standing at the bar and sat his drink down while talking to a guest. And When he turned back to get his drink, he'd been moved to the other side of the bar. There was nobody in sight. One another night, a woman excused herself from her party to go to the restroom. When she didn't come back for more than 30 minutes, the people at the table began to get worried and asked the waitress to check on her. The uh, waitress went to the women's restroom and 
opened the door and the woman rushed out, running past the waitress, screaming somebody locked her in the restroom. She'd been trying to get out for more than half an hour. Couldn't get the door open. None of the entrance doors to the bathroom have locks, but she couldn't get it open. Restrooms seem to be a frequent location for hauntings. People and staff alike have seen the faucet suddenly turn on and the toilets flush on their own. Moaning has been heard at night, as has stomping, it gets louder as it comes closer and then suddenly vanishes. Knocks occur on the back door of the restaurant, but when checked, there's nobody there. In the room, frequented by the Spilotro gang, now called the Mafia Room, pictures can't be hung on the wall. They just slide off the wall and sit there, according to manager Hoosier. Round psychic Sylvia Brown um, stayed at the, on the Montel Williams show. She believed two people died in the restaurant. And that story's often been expanded, uh, two people being killed by the mob in the restaurant. And beside the women's restroom, the piano lounge is the most frequent source of paranormal activity. Employees have reported seeing Liberace standing behind them as they cleaned. The fake trees in the room have been known to shake, and people have been sighted walking in after hours, but when the room is checked, there's nobody there. Well, many paranormal investigators have visited Carluccio's Tivoli Gardens reported the same thing as the restaurant's employees. There's just something about the place. Long time later, Alfredo Rangel subbed it up best when he said, I think the place is haunted. Definitely there's something there. And every year on the anniversary of his death, a place is set at the bar for Ribarachi, just in case he shows up. Who knows, one day you may enter the restaurant and see Ribarachi and all the old familiar places. When I went there for a meal, as part of the haunted tour that I took, um... There was a piano set in the main room. And uh, when I asked, was there going to be music, I was told that nobody dared touch it. Also in Vegas, I had the chance to tour Elvis's uh, suite at the Hotel International. Now... You know, it's interesting, when Elvis first came to Vegas, he was less than uh, stellar. When he came back, he would set records to this day hadn't been broken. And when he left, Vegas never forgot him. That's assuming he actually did leave. Now, when he came back... There was quite a number of, uh, shall we say, um, indications that he had returned. You know, Elvis dominated Vegas when he was in residence. And uh, Dixie Dooley was an illusionist and escape artist who specialized in recreating the tricks of Harry Houdini. And he was no stranger to performing on the Vegas Strip, nor was he a stranger to holding seances. In fact, they were often part of his show. Well, on this particular day, he was a little bit nervous. Another day in Vegas as he watched the crowd making their way into the little showroom inside the Greek Isles Hotel and Casino. It used to be owned by... Uh, Debbie Reynolds. Now, Elvis was called upon by Dixie Dooley doing one of his uh, seances. Actually, it was the 27th anniversary of his death. But he made a big point of the fact he was going to contact the spirit of Elvis Presley. Now, it was almost 2 p.m. on August 16, 2004, when the crowd, many of whom were new to the whole seance scene, walked into that room. They were made up of the usual people, devotees of the occult, mixed with the dedicated fans of Elvis, and of course those who were simply curious. Each and every person who walked into that room anticipated the probable possibilities that awaited them. Would Dooley really be able to contact the long-deceased king of rock and roll? Would Elvis actually make an appearance? 
And if he did, which version of Elvis would they see? The young heartthrob in leather or the older, heavier, jumpsuited version? Well, Doobie planned to contact Elvis at 2.01 p.m. because he knew Elvis was an avid believer in numerology and 2.01 were the king's favorite numbers. Well, as he... People got in place. Elvis's music played in the background. A few chosen spectators took their seats around the table set up for the event. Tricks of the trade, such as tambourines and bells and candles and a crystal ball, were on top of the table. The goateed Dooley took his place at the head of the on, in the ornate chair and set it uh, apart from the rest of the participants. And he began with the usual, let's all hold hands, speaking into the microphone in front of him and taking the hands of the people on either side. He said, we all have to close our eyes and concentrate, not just those sitting around the table, but everybody in the room. And the crowd did as he asked them to. With hands clenched and a crystal ball at the ready, Dooley channeled the ghost of Elvis while speaking into the microphone put right in front of him. He said, Elvis, we know how much you loved Las Vegas. You performed right across the street talking about the Las Vegas Hilton, which used to be the International. Are you here today? And everybody sat and waited. Then he said, Elvis, if you're here with us this afternoon, give us a sign. Well, at that very moment, a lightning bolt came out of the sky, accompanied by a loud crack of thunder. Already having been primed, the participants jumped in their seats, and one person even screamed. Well, the Greek Isle Hotel and Casino was one of the smaller, older properties in Las Vegas, and the roof was probably not in complete repair because the ceiling began dripping water and continued dripping throughout the remainder of the seance. Dooley tried several times to contact Elvis. Didn't have any luck. Well, the seance and in participants left the casino. They were all disappointed until they walked outside and found it was again a bright sunny day. According to Dooley, the Elvis fans and the occult fans determined the lightning bolt was Elvis's symbol. He used to wear a necklace with a lightning bolt, and it said TCB, his favorite saying, taking care of business. Well, Elvis' first visit to Vegas was much less spectacular. April 23, 1956, before he became the king, he opened for comedian Shecky Green at the New Frontier Casino. He was booked as the atomic-powered singer in an attempt to cash in on Las Vegas' fascination with the nuclear testing that was filling its skies with mushroom clouds. As Elvis gyrated his hips and bent his knees and lifted himself onto his toes, the audience was shocked. They weren't ready for this young upstart who appealed more to the teenage element than he did to this older, more sophisticated crowd, and they let him know it. Bottom line is Elvis bombed in this first appearance. Well... Elvis may not have impressed the crowd. He did catch the attention of an up-and-coming piano player named Liberace who came to see him perform one night. When the show was over, Liberace went back stay with his brother George and took some publicity photos with Elvis. One photo with Liberace held a guitar while Elvis stroked the keys of a piano. And although the two entertainers enjoyed each other's company, neither had any idea of the impact they'd both have on the, the Las Vegas culture. And although Elvis did bomb on his first visit, he eventually made up for it. Eight years later, in 1964, at the height of his movie career, he made a movie with Anne Margaret called Viva Las Vegas. Elvis may have been more a little apprehensive about returning to the town that had initially rejected him. But his good looks and singing, combined with Anne Margaret's tight pants and sweaters, brought in hordes of moviegoers, both male and female. That movie was a huge success, and started what would become Las Vegas' lifelong fascination with Elvis. He came back to town a third time in 1967, but on this time it wasn't to perform, it was to uh, attend a wedding when he married Priscilla Brelou. They were married at the Aladdin Hotel in Milton Prell Suite. According to Las Vegas' son, Preston wore a black brocade silk tuxedo and western boots. Priscilla wore a floor-length wedding gown of her own design, white silk chiffon, with a beaded yoke trimmed in seed pearls and topped with a three-foot tule veil secured by rhinestone crown.
Priscilla's maid of honor was her sister Michelle. Two members of the so-called Memphis Mafia, Marty Lacker and Joe Esposito, stood in his best men. Gangster style, style the name given to the that group of uh, friends and associates and employees of Elvis's uh, was given because it never left Elvis's side. Well, the story about how Elvis met Priscilla is fairly well known. She was 14 at the time they met in Bad Neuheim, Germany. Elvis was 25. They had an eight-year courtship before they married. In fact, the courtship lasted longer than the marriage. And the wedding itself only lasted eight minutes. Then there was a press conference and a breakfast reception for their approximately 100 guests. At the reception, Elvis and Priscilla cut a six-tiered wedding cake and danced to Love Me Tender. Brian Mills, an Elvis impersonator and manager of the Viva Las Vegas Wedding Chapel, said that uh, Elvis made it hip to get married in Las Vegas. Well, maybe Elvis would have actually appeared at this uh, Dooley seance if Dooley had held it in the right place. 1969, Elvis signed on for a four-week stint at the International, later what became the Las Vegas Hilton. And if Elvis was at all apprehensive about performing one more time in a town that so long ago ejected, he knows that a little apprehensiveness would prove to be unfounded. He did two shows a night and set Las Vegas attendance records, sold out the 2,200-seat showroom for 58 nights in a row. Set a record for gross receipts with more than $1.5 million in revenue. By 1970, he had switched from leather pants to what became his trademark, leather jumpsuits open to his chest. His signature hairstyle now included long sideburns, and he routinely wore thick gold-rimmed sunglasses. And he also began to perform the martial art moves he'd learned in private lessons. He played Las Vegas every year for the next eight years. His last time was uh, December 12, 1976. Died a little more than eight months later, but he may, may never have left Vegas. In fact, when we were there for uh, an event, uh, my wife, uh, the profession she's in has a conference there every so often, and I'd go to the National Association of Broadcasters. And while staying at the International, or the Las Vegas Hilton as it became, I got into a conversation with one of the uh, long-time employees, and I, I just made a off-the-cuff remark, seen Elvis lately, and he said, well, as a matter of fact, he's been seen several times sitting in the box overlooking the stage. In fact, Wayne Newton was going to uh, perform some of Elvis's songs, and he was a little apprehensive about it because he didn't want to offend the king. And he said he glanced up, and there, sitting in the box, looking down at him with a smile, was Elvis. Now, Elvis's sightings, I found out, are common in the backstage area of the Las Vegas Hilton. One evening, an employee was polishing the floor of the stage at about 3 in the morning, or what's probably called the graveyard shift. As he was humming a tune to himself, something made him look up, and he was sure he saw Elvis walking toward him. Said at first, I thought it was one of the impersonators. I've seen hundreds of Elvis impersonators, some good, some not so good. But when I saw him, I thought, man, if that guy's not a dead ringer for Elvis, I don't know who he is. And according to the employee, this particular Elvis had the same mannerisms, the same way of walking. He said, I was fixing to tell him so when he got up to me, and we got within the foot of each other, and all of a sudden I felt so cold like the heat had gone off or something. Well, he started to ask the man if he noticed a change in climate when Elvis just vanished right there in front of him. He said, I know it sounds crazy, but that's the best way I can describe it. Well, Elvis had a close connection to the Las Vegas Hilton, most likely because it was the site of his greatest success. And several employees have reported seeing Elvis walking around the wings of the showroom and in the backstage freight elevator. When performing, he'd frequently take the freight elevator to the upper floors, hoping to avoid the screaming fans who were all too eager to molest him. One occasion after the king's death, a guest room attendant entered the elevator with her supply cart when she noticed a man standing on the elevator. Well, she had seen Elvis many times before, and she said, uh, Hello, Mr. Presley. 
and the uh, the figure said hello. But it was at that moment she realized the man she was talking to was dead. According to the Las Vegas legend, the restroom attendant slammed the red button, bringing the elevator to stop at the next floor, ran out of the elevator, continued to run until she left the building entirely, and never came back. Which is all to be seen running to the stage in his white jumpsuit. If anybody tries to talk to him, he vanishes. Others have seen him driving his signature Cadillac out of the parking garage. And many, many people have mistaken this ghost for an Elvis impersonator until Elvis drives the caddy into the concrete retaining wall and disappears. Now, the place where Elvis is frequently seen is in the penthouse suite he stayed in while performing at the Las Vegas Hilton. The suite, which is now appropriately known as the Elvis Suite, is on the 30th floor. Rumor has it the king used to ride around the suite in a golf cart so he could get around faster. And he's often seen there in the golf cart or simply walking around the suite. I had a chance to tour that suite with one of the uh, senior management officials. And it was a very interesting uh, tour. Probably the most famous sighting of the king comes from Mr. Las Vegas himself, Wayne Newton, the one I talked about a few moments ago. Before Elvis Presley was a name known by anyone but his intermediate family and friends, Wayne Newton had already released his first record and toured with a Grand Ole Opry show. Arrived in Las Vegas as junior in high school, has been performing in one capacity or another in the town ever since. Yeah, Wayne Newton, along with Elvis and Liberace, make up the three names most closely associated with Las Vegas entertainment, outside of the, the Rat Pack, of course. It was in first grade we performed in a USO shore for President Truman and eight years old when uh, won a chance to compete along with his brother at the National Talent Show, Ted Mack's original amateur hour, which I remember well. He would lose, as did Elvis when he entered that show. Another thing Newton had in common with Elvis was the Las Vegas Hilton. He performed there on the very same stage as Elvis. And one night, Newton was on that stage performing where Elvis had performed and singing a song Elvis had sung when he looked up into the balcony and there sat the king. He said Elvis was wearing the same outfit he'd been immortalized in by a statue the Las Vegas Hilton put outside the showroom in his honor back in 78. Well, Newton was only 10 years younger than the king and had known him well. When he saw that man sitting in the balcony, he knew what he was looking at. He was looking at Elvis himself. Well, Elvis has been dead much more than 30 years. The town that first rejected him has held firmly to its adopted son. 2008, at the anniversary of, the, of his death, the Las Vegas Hilton put another statue at the entrance to the hotel. Elvis is posed in his famous jumpsuit, guitar strapped around his neck, microphone in hand, forever performing for the crowd. The Las Vegas psychic once confirmed Elvis still walks the earth because he has unfinished business to do. Psychic stated Elvis would move on eventually once that business was finished. Elvis died August 16, 1977. He's been dead more than uh, 45 years now. According to the Las Vegas Sun, about 150 mourners gathered outside of the Las Vegas mortuary to pay their respects to the service that featured uh, Presley's music played through uh, loudspeakers. And Las Vegas has never forgotten Elvis. His image is everywhere, and impersonators are found on many stage shows and on the streets trying to lure people into businesses. But possibly the best tribute to the Elvis is the Cirque du Soleil tribute show, Viva Elvis. And while this first effort... In Las Vegas may have been less than stellar. The lasting impression he left has never been equaled. In fact, in Las Vegas, it can truly be said Elvis has never left the building. Every year, sightings of Elvis increase as the anniversary date of his death draws near. Records show that on the actual day Elvis died, Las Vegas was struck by an uncommon rainfall. According to the Las Vegas Review Journal, the rain fell for three hours. Coming down so hard, it caused the roofs of Countless businesses and homes to collapse under the weight of constant rainfall. Maybe Dewey's seance had an impact after all. Well, another name that had an impact on Las Vegas 
was the man that actually got it started. Notorious mobster Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. He was determined to live in a luxurious resort in the middle of the Las Vegas Strip. Envisioned himself as the center of attention in the most elegant hotel on earth. And although his vision didn't come true during his lifetime, his vision was instrumental uh, in his death. And he's said to still inhabit the halls of the Flamingo Hotel, making his dream come true. And there's many stories about his life and death. Um, there are those that say that he was murdered by his mobster uh, friends, Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky, because uh, he was spending too much money creating Las Vegas. Others say that it was Virginia Hill, his girlfriend, had him shot because he was uh, he frowned on her seeing other men. Well, there's a story that's told about two ladies who got on a bus in front of the Royal Resort. Uh, Virginia Ridgeway, curator of the historic and reportedly haunted Goldfield Hotel in Goldfield, Nevada, and her daughter on one of their typical adventures, just to come to Las Vegas, or as many people call it, Sin City. And while they were there more for business than for pleasure, there's no reason they couldn't enjoy a few shows, some dining, and maybe a luxury spa treatment. It was 9.30 that evening when the two stepped onto the tour bus. Virginia talked her daughter into going on the Haunted Vegas tour, which I went on. I'd recommend it. She knew the owner, Robert Allen, and he invited her to take the tour. As the ladies settled into their seats, they noticed a man just about to sit across the aisle. Virginia said later she didn't remember seeing him in the lobby. And the daughter said, I don't think I saw him either. Maybe he came at the last minute. Or maybe he was hiding in the bathroom. The man very politely asked if they minded if he sat there. They said not at all. The man sat down in the seat and asked the women where they were from. and They told him and he smiled. Daughter whispered to her mother, looks like he's alone. And Virginia said, well, maybe he's hoping we'll keep him company. And uh, the daughter said, well, maybe we should. He's kind of cute. Excitement arose as everybody filed onto the bus, which seemed to be filled with nervous energy and anticipation. And once they were on board, the tour guide came on the bus. He was dressed almost completely in black. Black suit, black shirt, black ascot, black stovepipe hat stove <laughs> pipe hat on his head yeah Virginia's daughter said I know he's supposed to look like an undertaker but it thinks he will look like a chimney sweep the man that sat beside him heard the comment and laughed tour guide welcomed the people on the bus and began to describe the mysteries and haunts that awaited them he said the tour had been featured on both the discovery and the history channels and went on the list of places where they'll be stopping, explaining that ghosts typically hang out uh, only for six or seven seconds. He said Las Vegas is the suicide capital of America. Not everybody who comes here leaves here. Sometimes what happens in Vegas truly stays in Vegas. Now, it was a very corny joke, but the man sitting next to the two women laughed louder than anybody, something he did every time the tour guide told a joke. Virginia whispered to her daughter, I think our friend over here has had one too many. Well, the tour made its way to some of the supernatural hotspots in Vegas, including the Las Vegas Hilton in the corner where Tupac Shakur was gunned down. And as the bus approached the Flamingo Hotel, the man next to the two women seemed to take a sudden interest in what the tour guide had to say about the hotel's famous owner, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. man laughed at some points and even said the tour guide was wrong about a fact he attributed to Siegel. Well, the tour bus stopped outside the hotel, and all on board got off the bus and headed to an area by the hotel rooms and wedding chapel, commonly known as Bugsy's Garden. The man stayed behind the two women as they walked through the garden. He was laughing as the tour guide continued to talk. And the group eventually gathered around a monument to the slain gangsters. The tour guide continued talking. The monument consisted of a large bronze plaque that had a depiction of the original flamingo at the top and a carved face of the monster, mobster at the bottom, and the plaque was engaged in stone. 
Well, Virginia began to speak. She said, what do you think of the... And she turned to the man, wanted to find he wasn't there. Looked around, but he's nowhere in sight. And she asked a tour guide what happened to that man. And he said, what man? The man who was standing right here, she said. The man who was sitting next to us on the bus. You know, the man who laughed a little too loud at your jokes. And the tour guide responded, he may have gone to the restroom. We'll wait a few minutes for him to come back. Well, after five minutes, the man still hadn't returned. The tour guide waited as long as he could and had a schedule to keep. And the man didn't want to continue on with the tour, then that was his business. Told the group to get on the bus, and they left the bingo without the man. Well, Virginia asked the tour guide, what do you think happened to him? Tour guide responded, I guess he just didn't want to finish the tour. And suddenly one of the other guests said, well, you, you don't think, uh, I mean, he did get off at the bingo. You don't think that could have been Bugsy, do you? Well, a lot of stories swarm around the deserts of southern Nevada. It's hard to determine fact from fiction. If you listen to some people, Bugsy Siegel was the man who invented Las Vegas. Of course, to believe him, you have to deny every event that occurred during the 90 years of history that had already filled the valley by the time Siegel arrived. Now, Benjamin Siegel was born in Brooklyn in uh, February of 1906, son of Jewish immigrants. As a young man, he teamed up with his best friend, Meyer Lansky, and they put together a string of illegal gambling events they called uh, floating crap games. So named because they were held in a different location every night. Switching spots night, they made it difficult for the police to find them. And this was ideal because neither Signal nor Lansky wanted to deal with the police, both already having had their time behind bars. And one night as the game was in full swing, a local police officer named Sergeant Hearn surprised the men by dropping in on the gathering. After a slight panic, uh, Lansky came up with a brilliant idea. He handed the dice to the sergeant, offered him a very generous odds. Lucky sergeant won ten bucks, but that didn't stop him from shutting the game down. Although he did ask why the two would be holding their next event. As the policeman departed, an angry seagull, feeling like he'd been made a fool of, followed him into the alley. Hit the policeman over the head with a lead pipe, took back the ten dollars and Hearn's gun. When Lansky discovered Siegel had the moxie to kill a cop for ten bucks, he said that Siegel was crazy as a bed bug. That led to Siegel's nickname Bugsy. Though born out of a lighthearted moment with a trusted friend, Siegel eventually grew to hate the nickname because of the comment it made on his violent temper. And those who dared to call him by that nickname reportedly didn't live to repeat the offense. He said, my friends call me Ben, strangers call me Mr. Siegel. Guys I don't like call me Bugsy, but not to my face. Well, Siegel and Lansky gained notoriety in the underworld, eventually become known as the Bug and Meyer mob. They became involved in bootlegging in New York and New Jersey and Philadelphia, and then they teamed up with Albert Anastasia and Luciano in a gang called, uh, led by Joe de Boss Masseria. Years later, Siegel reportedly killed de Masseria on orders uh, from Lucky Luciano, a move that ended the war for control of the New York mob and created the, what became known as the Syndicate. You know, when I was uh, took the tour in uh, Vegas, a lot of people told me stories about uh, sightings of Siegel. And apparently that still goes on. Well, we come to the end of tonight's show. We'll be back and talk more tomorrow about uh, hauntings in Las Vegas. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.